Streaming architecture defines how large volumes of data make their way through an organization. Data is created at a user's smartphone or on a sensor inside of a conveyor belt at a factory or really anywhere. That data is sent to a set of back-end services that aggregate the data, organizing it and making it available to business analysts, application developers, and machine learning algorithms. The velocity at which data is created has led to widespread use of the stream abstraction. A stream is a never-ending, append-only array of data. To deal with this volume, streams need to be buffered, batched, cached, map-reduced, machine-learned, and munged until they are in a state where they can provide value to the end user. There are numerous ways that data can travel this path, and in today's episode we discuss the streaming systems, data lakes, and data warehouses that can be used to build an architecture that makes use of streaming data. Ted Dunning is a chief application architect at MapR, and he joins the show to discuss the patterns that engineering teams are using to build modern streaming architectures. Full disclosure, MapR is a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. And I want to mention our meetups. Meetups for Software Engineering Daily are being planned. Go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash meetup if you want to register for an upcoming meetup. In March, I'll be visiting Datadog in New York and HubSpot in Boston, and in April, I'll be at Telesign in L.A. We've got some of the talks planned already, but other ones are up in the air. We're not exactly sure what we're going to be doing at these meetups, but the past ones have all been pretty awesome, pretty good energy, great crowd, and I think you'll like them. So if you can make them, I'd love to see you at the Software Engineering Daily meetups. We also have summer internship applications to Software Engineering Daily that are being accepted right now. If you're interested in working with us on the Software Engineering Daily open source project full-time this summer, it's going to be a remote opportunity, send an application to internships at softwareengineeringdaily.com. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to get your help on the open source project, and you'll get paid for it if you're an intern. So thanks for listening, and I hope you like this episode. Ted Dunning is a Chief Application Architect at MapR. Ted, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Well, howdy. We've done several shows recently about streaming data. And for modern applications, it can make sense to build your logic around a central data stream. So today we're going to talk about that. And we're also going to talk about ways to build machine learning systems around that central data stream. Why don't you start off by giving us an overview for a typical streaming architecture and what the different components of that architecture are? Sure. There's there's often a reaction to this sort of discussion. People say, oh, we had streaming back in the 90s. And we definitely had message passing systems. And then we had service-oriented architecture and so on. But each one of those became more and more complicated. And the passing of messages became expensive, involving database commits every time you consume or produce a message. And so performance always was an issue. There was also always an issue of schema and things like that and who had access, whether or not you could build a stream because of the performance issues. There was not a lot of ease of use and you didn't wind up with very pervasive streams. Also, and this is kind of like a 1980s mindset that that persisted even to the present day, the idea was that we wanted to delete messages as soon as possible. 
and a lot of the technical effort that impacted performance was due to that idea that we would delete things right away. Because it was expensive to hold on to stuff? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And especially it's expensive to hold it on to stuff in the context of a system that is designed around trying to get performant transactions in place. And so 10,000 or 100,000 messages per second was really considered high volume. And that's really quite low if you look at all the things that are happening in a business. And so the modern view of this is, is quite different. It's one we really, really, really want to isolate the producer and the consumer in some very fundamental ways. And we want to hide the implementation details of the producer and the consumer. Even an implementation like detail like, has the consumer even been written yet? But, but also, is it running in batch or continuously? But the idea of this, this independence and the simplicity of the transport is so that we can build these systems, which consist of independent little entities, things that can be updated independently, and which communicate using streaming. And the point of that is that when you interact with the outside world, you often need to give a response and answer a question, render a page, approve a transaction, debit an account, all of those things. Something needs to be done right now, and you need to give an answer back. But almost always, there's more work that would be better if you could defer it as well. So you do the right now thing, and then you say, and later I'm going to go through and I'll update the monthly statements. Or later I'm going to go in and make sure that the inventory has been updated. Lambda architecture. Yeah, well, not Lambda. Lambda is all about I'm going to f*** it up in real time and then fix it in batch. This is a real-time architecture, not a Lambda architecture. Lambda is about an admission that with the tools we had at the time, we couldn't build good real-time systems on large data. But frankly, we now can. And so the idea that we, we have to fix it up later in batch really needs to be killed. We can do the right thing. So, But if we're going to build these independent systems, they have to be independent. Otherwise, they're not independent. I mean, otherwise, what happens is... Doing anything to one ripples out and the the blast zone of any kind of system changes expands without limit. And then you have to get a lot of people in the room and it's really hard to make any changes or any improvement. If things are independent, if they can be deployed independently, then we can kind of hide our dirty laundry and we can improve things without other people realizing we're improving them because we're providing the same service that we always did. The tool for that independence, for that decoupling, is almost surely going to be Kafka or something like Kafka. Is that correct? Yeah, but let's talk about why. So we have the classic microservice that people talk about, which is almost always query response, real-time response sort of thing. But there's another kind that the key definition of microservice is independently deployable. And independence like that implies that the producer of a message that's streaming that message away can fire and forget. Once it's sent the message and been acknowledged that the streaming system has it it doesn't have to know how many consumers there are, whether the consumers are writing, running right now, or even if they've been written. 
And that independence implies persistence. Now, there's another thing we want, and that is we don't want anybody to ever imagine that they need to work around the performance of that streaming system. We want them to say, absolutely, I can just send as much as I want. If I want to send a million messages a second, it's no big deal. So in addition to persistence, we need performance. Performance, the room has to be wide enough that we can't touch the walls and tall enough that we can't touch the ceiling. And a third property that we need is pervasiveness. So 40 years ago, there were no networks. And if you wanted to use a file, you'd have to have this committee meeting and you'd have to have budget authority and and you'd have to promise that there was somebody to call after hours if things broke and you had to have a contingency plan if your file grew. And so files were really a pain in the butt and they weren't really very pervasive. The idea of of long-term storage like that was a difficult concept. And then later when we had networks initially, you had to have kind of your own purpose-built network between a few machines, and they were not pervasive. With the advent of TCP and DNS, and with the advent of POSIX semantics for files, both of those have become pervasive, meaning nobody even thinks twice about it in getting that. And we need streaming to be just as pervasive. So the three properties we need are persistence, performance, and pervasiveness. It has to be like the air. Nobody imagines that you're going to build a data center without a network. It's just absurd. And it needs to be absurd to build it without a super multi-tenant streaming capability as well. It's just as fundamental as files and databases. Let me ask you a question about how things get onto this stream. So let's say I'm a user and I am changing my profile on a social network. And let's say I, while I'm cha- I change the form, maybe I'm updating my job title and I click confirm and it sends a request to the server to do an update operation on my profile database entry. And at some point, that is also going to, it's going to write to the database, the profiles database, but it's also going to create some sort of event at some point that will be put onto this Kafka event stream, assuming we're talking about some sort of stream-based architecture, so that other systems could potentially consume that event. And this could be something that, this is the same kind of pattern that we would be doing if we if we were also doing some sort of uh, large-scale logging or analytics, like if you had an IoT device that's sitting out in the wilderness somewhere gathering a bunch of data on soil, and you're just sending large volumes of data to some back-end service, and that back-end service is throwing it onto this Kafka stream. So where, can you give me an overview for how that transaction proceeds? Or, like, is the, the service that is that is calling originally, or is the request calling directly to a service that writes to the Kafka stream, or is there some other sort of service that sits right on top of the Kafka stream and then that performs all the writes, like an event gateway or something like that? I'd just like to, to, to get an overview for the architecture of how you see people typically writing events to this Kafka stream. Yeah, and, and let's listen just to what you said for a moment there. Early on, you said writes to the profile database and updates a profile. Now, users update their profile every time they do anything because it's very important in the moment to have some idea 
of what their intent is and what's happening. So the last 20 pages of content that they've seen is important because that helps you with the recommendations. The, the fact that they're coming from this particular IP address and it's a known one and so on is part of their profile. Now, of course, the publicly visible aspects are also part of their profile, and those are subject to explicit change. But there's a lot of implicit aspects of the profile. Now, you also said the profile database. And imagine, if you will, you have a master profile database, and I say, oh, wait, we need to change that over. We have to change the underlying technology. We have to switch it over to an in-memory database. Or we have to put a caching layer on it. Or we have to switch to using document database or relational or whatever we want. You know, there's a lot of different choices and there are a lot of reasons for making those choices. But making a wholesale change to a global database resource like that is liable to get you assassinated because you're going to break something. And the problem is that databases for different applications have different optimizations. The optimization could be the actual technology, could be the data model, could be whether or not indexes are created or not. And one person's optimization is another person's pessimization. This is inherent in the problem of databases, which are very flexible, and therefore, many of the operations are very expensive. And trying to make one operation cheap puts a tax on other users. And so the assumption that there is a singular database there is a fundamental error in some sense, in that it leads to coagulation of, of the entire development organization because it puts dependencies between everybody. And so somebody will... Sure. Things. sure. Sure. Well, even at a minimum, I mean, the early conversations I had about Kafka when I did my first couple shows on Kafka, I talked to people from LinkedIn, which is where Kafka originated from. And the whole problem they were trying to solve was, for example, your a user is updating their profile and the user profile database needs to be updated, but also you need to update the search index, for example. Right. So you have multiple databases that you want to be updated in a way where they are consistent in a reasonable amount of time, a, a low amount of time? Well, no. Actually, I think you want them consistent relative to a point in time, which may not be the present. But And where that leads, I think, is that streams, which have very flexible schema, and I'm not going to say Kafka. I'm going to say Kafka-esque because, frankly, we provide a more advanced streaming platform than Kafka, but we think that Kafka-esque protocols and style of persistence, performance, and pervasiveness are critical. We just think it's also really important that they natively span the globe, that they that they have file names, that you should have a stream, it should be in a directory like a file is. It's just another form of persistence. It has a different byte life cycle. But Aside from that nomenclatural thing of do we assume it's Kafka or do we admit that it should be just a general instance of these 3P types of persistence, I think that the persistence that we share is much more appropriately a stream than it is a database. Databases are all about the definition of now and changes that happen in the now. Streams are all about being able to say before this – and after this, and before and after are much safer things to express 
in a global setting. And global means bigger than 30 centimeters in diameter. Okay, I totally agree with... So so that transaction should go to the stream first. And the person making the change push a business event, not a database-level event, but a business-level event, into the stream. So this is something that I see as crucially different between the way that people start writing their applications, like a typical CRUD application, and how things work in an ideal streaming system. Because if you're just building a CRUD application, like you're building the first version of Airbnb, and people are just posting their site list, their home listings, people are reserving homes, and it's just a very transactional system at low volume, it's totally fine to just have a request response. You know, you're hitting the Ruby on Rails thing that's backed by Mongo. You don't need this streaming abstraction. But once you start to get to this large volume and you have multiple data stores, multiple consumers, then you should change things to where the requester is just creating events that get thrown onto this stream and you have subscribers that pull off of that stream. So you have this intermediate broker of information. Is that accurate? Yeah, it is. But again, there's a huge assumption that that simple CRUD is the way that business is done. But in fact, the real world never worked that way. And businesses actually never worked that way. We have the example of Alice and Bob, Alice giving Bob a check for $5 and Alice's account being debited and Bob's account being credited. Yeah, yeah, isn't that wonderful? If we had transactions, that would be beautiful. But that doesn't happen that way in the real world. In a real world, a check or an ACH debit goes to a clearinghouse, which is essentially a stream. And Alice loses the money as soon as the transaction goes to the stream, the the great clearinghouse in the sky, and Bob gets the money when the transaction hits his account from that stream. That is exactly streaming. You aren't suggesting that if Airbnb is just struggling to get their business off the ground, they should hook up this elaborate streaming system before they even get traction with their business, are you? No, I don't think they should hook up an elaborate streaming system. I think streaming should be pervasive. It should be as easy as creating a file, and it should be distributed, which is part of pervasive, and it should be the easy way to do this. And then if the web front end wants to go all Mongo mode, cool. They should read the. They should be writing those updates to the stream, and they should read them for their own database into the stream. Now, if somebody just a little bit later says, "Damn, that was naive, guys. This is really a bad way to do this," they can say, "Oh, I'm going to use MapRDB, or I'm going to use Aerospike, or I'm going to use something else," and they can start reading that stream as well, and they have their database. Now, the two databases I contend are exactly consistent, not consistent soonly. They're consistent, meaning that if they have read up to the same point in the stream, they will have exactly the same contents. That's the true meaning of consistency, because there is no now. You can view it as asymptotic. Once they pass the same point, then all the transactions will have been seen. But we cannot know, for instance, what is the temperature in Berlin right now? Right now, meaning one millisecond, because the speed of light is too slow. And we cannot know the state of the other side of the data center, even. I think what you know, I think what we can agree on is that the value of the the, the a stream abstraction, and this is something that was really confusing to me for for a pretty long time, is that it's you can you can almost view the stream. Well, you can view the stream as this append only 
array-like sequence where any type of consumer that wants to read from that array of events can start at any place in that array as long as that array has been persisted or it's sitting in in memory or any other kind of available storage system you can just read from it and you can start at any place in time you can read as few or as many events as you want and you're reading a stream well, you're reading an array and that is in contrast to the way that i saw things early on when i heard the word streaming i was like oh okay it's like you've got just got this stream that's passing you by and you just stick your net in and you just catch whatever comes by that appeals to you but that's not really it a stream is not this transient thing as you've said multiple times you 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 like to view streams as files where you can go to the beginning of a file, you can go to the end of a file, you can process it however you want. I, d- I don't view them as files. I, I, files have one byte life cycle. Databases have another. They're record-oriented. They're mutable very nicely in the middle. Files are kind of mutable, but they're only by byte offsets. And to delete a file, you, you kind of can delete the middle of it by writing nulls, but you may or may not delete things. You can basically just delete the entire file. Databases let you do all kinds of wonderful record-level mutability, delete records one at a time, and then delete the database at the end of the life cycle. Streams are record-oriented as well, but they only allow you to append, and then they magically evaporate from the front. So they just have a different life cycle. But there are three forms of these things. They're different. A database is not a file. It could be implemented on top of a file. But it isn't. The, 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 the database mentality and life cycle of a byte is different than the life cycle of a byte and a file. And a stream is a third form, fundamental form of that. And they should be co-equal within a file system. You should be able to make a directory with a config file and a stream in it or, or whatever you like, or a database with a, in a directory. And so you and I should be able to run the same application on this global data fabric, and you have your directory, I have my directory, we run the same application, we go against our private database, say, and read from the same stream. But I think you're exactly right in that streams are not a, a moving river, which when past us, we can never... <laughs> relive you know it's not that poetical and and that that's a uh, common confusion right it really is and partly it's common because it has never before been plausible to make the stream be the system of record it was never plausible because storing them for a long time was never practical even with kafka it has distinct limits because of technical reasons but it really should be the moving hand having writ writes on, but leaves the ink on the paper. And it's a brilliant thing. And you may want to make snapshots, have a snapshot service so that somebody doesn't have to read all from the beginning of time. They can start with a snapshot and read forward. There's a lot of things you may want to do there, but it makes a better system of record than a database. And we were talking before we started about machine learning. And I said, one of the key problems in machine learning is what did you know and when did you know it? You To build a, one of these systems that's going to make some kind of decision, you have to know what did you know just before the decision point. And the decision points are different for every different account or entity that you're deciding about. And so you need to be able to know exactly what did you know at all these different moments in time and to be able to build a snapshot of your knowledge then. And a stream makes that 
not dead simple, but tractable. And a database, because of mutability, and files, because of mutability, make that intractable. You have to approximate and guess a lot. So if there's one thing that I am hoping people take away from the the series of shows about streaming that we've been doing, it's, I think, that the stream or the queue or the PubSub system, whatever you want to call this component of your architecture is really important and it's it kind of turns things on a new perspective than if you're just thinking about having your like the the batch world where you've just got all your files in hdfs and you've got to do this really heavy protracted operation to pull all of your hdfs files into memory and perform large operations on them and then you have a result and then if you want to do another result uh, if you want to do another computation there it's going to be another big protracted operation the fact that we have this stream this big data stream and it's not cost prohibitive really changes what the kind of processing you 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 have access to because of that data availability and we can certainly get into the processing we've done some shows about flink and spark recently and you know these are kinds of the processing systems that you would do on top of this long data stream but really the emphasis that i want us to have it here is that you have access to this data stream now and it changes how you're going to build systems around that stream. Absolutely, absolutely. And frankly, files naturally lead to batch. And that way lies madness and lambda. Life doesn't happen in batches, as a friend of mine says, and it is not a good model of the real world. Streams are the way the world happens. And so that's a much more natural way to do that. And that doesn't mean that files are not useful. It doesn't mean that batch is not useful. If I have some training set of data and I want to build a model, I want to use that training set and I want to freeze it so that I can do reference builds and so on. I want that to be batch. And files are totally natural and appropriate there. But if I want to model the real world and things happening in the real world and be able to process them in a natural way, then streams are the natural construct. And I don't think that one has ultimate primacy over the other. They are both valid and very, very useful. You should have a directory with both kinds of things in it. It should be natural and it should be distributed so that I don't care what machine I'm running on. And those perform the function of transport of data from place to place, from program to program and so on. And then things like Flink and Spark and so on and confusing like Kafka streams, provide the processing aspect. And these are the two, the dual nature of computing is process and transport, Pro- munging the data and moving it to the to the mungers and from the mungers. So at MapR, you have looked at Kafka and said that there were some tweaks that you wanted to make to this Kafka-like system and you guys ended up developing something called MapR Streams. What were the design decisions that led to the creation of that system? Well, the process was quite simple. It was immediately apparent that Kafka's pretty radical design decisions were incredibly right for the modern world. And eras in time in engineering design are often described by ratios. And with disks, for instance, the ratio of size to speed 
has radically changed over time. And that has really radically changed how we think of computing. 1980-something, the Fujitsu Eagle was 300 megabytes, and you could read about 202 megabytes per second off of it. That means the size of the disk is perhaps best expressed as 150 seconds, because that's how long it took to spill the disk or fill the disk. But a modern disk drive uh, could be 8 terabytes and 100 megabytes per second. So it's gone up massively in size and pretty substantially in speed, but it is now 80,000 seconds in size. So what before was quite plausible, that is rewrite the entire disk, is now inconceivable. You cannot have a reasonable program rewrite an entire disk if you imagine it's going to be responsive at all, because it'll take a day. It'll take a day at best. If you put any kind of randomness into the writing, it will take months, not a single day. And so the design ratio there, the size of the disk expressed in seconds, has fundamentally changed what we can do. And Kafka-esque ideas of a very persistent stream that is very stupid, happily and triumphantly stupid, and that it does not have execution lists, it does not have triggers, it does not have all of this stuff built into it. All it does is reliably let you send a message and then consume it. And basically, the producer cares only about producing and waiting for an acknowledgement, and the consumer keeps track of where it is. That degradation of the mission fit perfectly with this change in disk size from 150 seconds to 80 kiloseconds. That's a big, big fundamental difference. So we started with that. That was brilliant. That's good. But it really needs more than that because people need simplicity in their lives where there are things that don't concern them very much. So security You've got permissions on files, you've got permissions on directories, you've got in the MapR system, you've got volumes that an administrator can put bounds on the security. Why do streams not have exactly the same permissions and user IDs and so on as files? They are just a byte life cycle, it's slightly different. They are just a perform of persistence, which is very useful. They should be co-equal. We should factor away the question of permissions and authentication from the idea of the life cycle. Those are orthogonal components. Another one is, where is it? It should not reside on any single machine. It should magically be distributed to wherever it needs to be. There should be no user actions if some machine fails. The system should deal with that, like any good data platform would, and in fact, that should be handled for files and tables and streams as a single fundamental capability. And so you have these cross-cutting concerns that really are important to have. And so that's where we saw, we, we saw immediately that Kafka, as it was designed, lacked all of these. It, it had the, the insight that streaming in a modern sense is far better than streaming in an older sense and is a much better way to build things, especially large systems. It's a great way to communicate between small systems in order to build a large system, but it fundamentally lacked those other capabilities. And so instead of trying to come up with a minimum viable product, we said, where should it be? We looked ahead 
and build a system that is where it needs to be for the future. So now that we've discussed in detail the Kafka-esque system that you're going to be writing all of your events to, we can talk a little bit about streaming and some of the opportunities for, I'm sorry, stream processing, some of the opportunities for stream processing and how that eventually fits into machine learning. So I talked to your colleague, Tug, and much of what we discussed was the idea of You've got this stream and you're writing events to it, and oftentimes those events are fairly raw. Like we talked about the example of you're just you know writing all. If you, we give the example of Fitbit, where you're just writing a bunch of data points that are GPS coordinates, timestamps, and user ID, so that you can get the velocity and acceleration of a user through time, because you can get their different coordinates at different times. And you might be writing those raw events to the stream, and then you might have some stream processing system like Apache Flink or Apache Apex or Spark, and you might be using that stream processing system to to process the high volumes of events and do some simple enriching. For example, you could take the GPS coordinates and aggregate them into velocity and acceleration, and then you could write the velocity and acceleration back onto the Kafka stream. So that was that was the basic example of of using the stream processing systems to create and then to write uh, enriched data back onto this giant stream that you have. What are some other patterns around using stream processing together with that giant stream that you can have that that you've seen be particularly useful? Yeah, and and I think that if you listened with your head sideways to what you said, you could actually say that you describe business as enriched data. I think that's a very viable way to look at it. And the the enrichment doesn't have to be simplistic or minor. It could be massive. It could be the thing that adds value to everything. So, right, you um, and just just to interrupt you just to to take your point a little bit further, you could say like if if you're a, running an e-commerce website, you could consider enrichment the gathering of all of the the transactions that took place across your e-commerce site and finding the most popular items that were purchased, for example, which is totally going to drive how you change your business. Or you could view enrichment as the causing of an item to be shipped to my house. Right. That that is an enrichment of data. The data being where is the lo- what is the location of the thing? And it's now my house. And that's cool because I wanted that thing. All of business ultimately now becomes a data operation. And that's an exciting step. Many of these data operations, many of these business actions involve decisions. And at the rate that an amalgamated business runs, you know, there's there's benefit to scale here. You cannot feasibly have humans make those decisions, often just due to speed, but also often it's really valuable to have vaguely human level of correct decision making and complexity of decision making, but a human would just cost too much. Even if you were to exploit them mercilessly, they would just cost too much. So we need to upscale the human into strategic sorts of decisions and tactical decisions that need to be made in the microsecond have to be made by machine. But that leads us immediately to machine learning. As I like to say, machine learning is just a different way of programming. It's a way of programming by example from data 
but it's just a way of programming. Now, unfortunately, that way of programming is not susceptible to a lot of the software engineering that we've invented over the many years. And so the idea that you know what you intend to do, that you have a specification and so on, that you can somehow validate that you have done what you intended to do is much harder when you don't know what you're going to do. If you don't know what fraud looks like, how can you write a specification for how to find it? How can you write a unit test for how to find it? Well, you can't. And so you have to reduce yourself to some statistical notion of it works better on average than before. And so instead of unit testing, you kind of have to run multiple of these systems at the same time. So machine learning is exciting and great and, and amazing what you can do, some of these things, but it also is limiting in that we have to start thinking about how do we run multiple versions of the same program at the same time in order to compare them in real time. And also... Because you're saying because you have to compare different versions of a model to one another in order to figure out which direction to go in? Yeah, but also because we have a bit of a divergence here. The people who build these things, who like to be styled as data scientists, because scientists is such a cool thing. You, you imagine you get purple robes or a white lab coat when you become a data scientist. But by nature, because of the the, the even now complexity of doing machine learning, you have to focus on that pretty hard. And so your concerns become very focused around how to build that machine learning system around accuracy. Necessarily, when you focus like that, concerns of reliability and security and so on kind of wind up over there, out of your frame of view. Now, that isn't acceptable for the focus of the entire team to only be on accuracy and not on reliability and acceptable speed and so on. So there needs to be a different part of the team. And we've got now a new kind of team. It's no longer just dev ops. It becomes data ops. Dev is, of course, in there, but it, it, it becomes part of the data mission. And so we need separation of concerns. The data person needs to think data and accuracy, but the ops person needs to think reliability. Did it meet SLAs? Can I guarantee it meets SLAs? So I'm, I'm with you that there are changes we need to make to team structures in this kind of environment, uh, but I would really and, like... And machine structures as well. Okay. The machine... The, the programming structure needs to reflect that separation of concerns. We can't have everybody worry about everything all the time. Mm, okay, but but let's let's take an example like the the whole Fitbit thing. So let's say we want to we want to build a model for where people are walking in a given day with the same kind of GPS coordinate stuff that we've that we've been talking about this simple straightforward enrichment where you know, the the basics of the enrichment process where we're just calculating velocity and acceleration from the GPS coordinates and timestamps of different users that's pretty straightforward but if we were trying to build mm. if we were it, trying it to, already is not it already is not because that data is noisy if you tried to present that data back to the user they would go this is this is horrible. 
So already you need just okay. To- okay, so let me let me simplify it even further. Let me simplify it even further. So let's say uh, we periodically try to calculate the acceleration and the velocity of a user, and then we send that to the user, and we ask the user, "Is this your velocity and acceleration? Is this a reasonable <laughs> velocity and acceleration?" They can click yes or no. So yeah. that gives a very simple way that we are building a quote machine learning model, and we have a feedback system where the users can rate how good we're doing with the the acceleration velocity calculations and then we can update our models we can a b test them respectively help me understand how we're going to implement that system how we're going to deploy it well as i see it there's a couple things that are going to happen we're going to have to run multiple versions of the model fine we also are going to have to record the data that the models saw at a particular moment that they were asked to make a decision in order to be able to improve those models and build more versions of the models. So we're going to need a recorder. I call it a decoy. It looks like a model. It gets inputs just like a model, but it doesn't actually quack like a duck. It just records the data. And we're going to need canaries, which are long-term, stable things that we understand so that we can compare new challengers to that venerable canary. And we're going to want all of the models to get exactly the same input at pretty much exactly the same time. Well, streaming is natural for that because a stream can have many readers. It could have a decoy, a canary, and five versions of the model all reading the same variables as input. And that would be excellent because then you know, the, the, the models that we're comparing get exactly the same input and the decoy that's recording things records exactly what we knew at the moment. And how do we know it's what they got? Because that's what all the models got because they all read from the same stream. But then we need something to decide which answer to return. And I call that a rendezvous server. Rendezvous meaning that the incoming request is read by the rendezvous server And then results that start popping out of the different models into a stream are rendezvoused with that original request and some decisioning process, reliability, desirability, accuracy, trade-off is made. So we say, for instance, here's the model that we think is the most accurate, but we aren't totally sure that it's quick or reliable. So we'll wait 30 milliseconds for its answer. At 30 milliseconds, we're going to go and say either the preferred model or the one we had last week are what we'll accept. Up to 40 milliseconds, we have a 50 millisecond deadline looming. And so now we will take a very, very simple but reliable model as one of the acceptable answers. Whatever we get first now, we're going to take. And at 45 milliseconds, we panic and we just say, if we don't have an answer yet, we're just going to give a default no or out of range or something, some default answer, so that we can guarantee that we meet our SLA with our best estimate. So the rendezvous server separates the concern of reliability from accuracy and allows models to be deployed with, I wouldn't say little regard, but far less regard, far less you know, due diligence than necessary. And- and how do, how are you tracking, so in that model, in that architecture where you have a set of different models, if I understood correctly, you've got a set of different models that are, are trained on the same set of data, or they could be trained on slightly different sets of data, but you've got a set of models that could conceivably respond to a user request, and 
you you might query one of them and if it doesn't respond in the right amount of time maybe you query a different one of them and no, no, no. i would query all of them simultaneously query all of them okay but then i uh, would i would look for my preferred one to answer mm. but if it hasn't answered in time i will accept anybody else's answer right okay and then are you doing some kind of some ID? Like, are you keeping an ID of each model so you know that, so you can keep track of which model served which request so that you can essentially have a, a, a testing system? Because you want to be able to use... Okay. Right. And all of them should be writing their results to the same stream. So I can easily compare their results on exactly the same queries. And there should also be uh, an ID on every request, which is basically a return address, which is a way of knowing where to send the result back to. Do you see this type of rendezvous model deployed in any of the clients that you've worked with or people you've talked to? I don't see the whole thing, but I do see pieces of it. I do see people deploying multiple models and using 100% speculative execution, meaning they evaluate all the models. I do see wide acceptance of the thesis that you have to have multiple models and you have to have multiple model development frameworks. It is no longer acceptable to say, we use SAS. And that's the end of the story. If you're going to make lots of different kinds of models, different kinds of systems excel at different scales and technologies. H2O is really, really good for some models. XGBoost is awesome at tree models that have very large size, is really good for simple models of small scale or, or not so simple models, but it, it doesn't build on really large scale very well. And TensorFlow, of course, is wonderful. Cafe is wonderful. MXNet's wonderful. They each have different trade-offs. That's that's good. You should be able to deploy any kind of the model to production very easily. A little bit of containerization and streaming later, you're you're good to go that way. And so I see ubiquitous multi-framework development. I see lots of people deploying fewer frameworks than they develop in. I see everybody saying you have to have multiple versions of the model, but this full-on rendezvous architecture where they just bite the bullet and go for it, I haven't seen yet. Let's take something like TensorFlow. If you have TensorFlow and you want to train ten, you want to train a TensorFlow model based off of the stream, this append-only stream of data that you have for, let's say, again, the GPS example, if you wanted to train a TensorFlow model based off of that, and then you wanted to have that TensorFlow model be periodically updated, what does that look like? Do you Does TensorFlow itself read off of the stream, or do you need some stream processing system that gathers batches of the data and loads it into TensorFlow, or how does that work? Well, you need some scaffolding in both sides, both the training and the deployment side. On the training side, on the Fitbit idea, you know, we've got measurements that were marked as a user as, well, that was just crazy. I wasn't in Oakland. I was in San Francisco. You know, there was just some error there. So you've got good and bad measurements in history in that stream. So you need to collate them and say, for this measurement and this context, that was good or bad. And we're going to build a model that decides whether they're good or bad. And so we need to go through history 
and find a chordal snapshot, a snapshot of different moments in time, different inputs, and different decision outcomes subsequent to that so that we have training data. The training data will probably be in a file. You, you need, if the training data is really large, the ability to snapshot the files and so on so that you can manage versions. If it's small, you might put it into Git or something like that. But that's going to be file-like, and you'll do TensorFlow training just like you ever have done TensorFlow training. But then for deployment, TensorFlow natively doesn't read streams. You'll need a little bit of scaffolding around it. And the simplest would be like a Python script that says, give me a record from the stream, parse out the different features, and call a Python method which evaluates the TensorFlow model and then gets the result back and writes that one record out to its output. You could batch them up, and if it's a, a GPU sort of thing, or if it's something like an ad targeting system where you might have thousands of queries, model evaluations for a single placement, then yeah, you, batching them might improve the performance because the performance of a of any kind of these models eventually comes down to something very much like matrix multiplication. And matrix times vector is not nearly as efficient as matrix times matrix, purely due to memory caching effects. So you might want to batch them, but I would never do that as a first round. I'd build a simple thing first, and then I would deploy the fancy thing as a challenger. And I would mark how often did it meet our SLAs? How often did it meet our stability requirements? How many times did the safety net catch it? Okay, I know your time is short. I want to close off by zooming out and talking about this at the business level. We've done a lot of shows about enterprise rebirth. Basically, you've got companies like insurance companies and oil companies and consumer packaged good companies where they are realizing that they are software companies that produce consumer packaged goods or they're software companies that produce insurance. And they are doubling down on the technological processes that they have in place. They're updating their architecture. They're bringing in uh, consultants and, and trying to figure out how to become a technology company. And a lot of the shows we've done around this have focused on the microservices or DevOps rebirth sort of thing. But equally important is probably the data streaming, the data lake, the building up the core competency to be able to do machine learning type of stuff. It's that all that is is pretty important. And so my question to you is if for one of these companies, like an understaffed in terms of technology resources insurance company, for example, where do they start when they have an old architectural system and they're just looking to, to, to sort of start to gain a toehold where they can maybe look at in two years or three years really having this streaming type of architecture to take advantage of? Well, the key need is to take a look at the business and find places where there are bottlenecks, but not just bottlenecks that slow down process, but bottlenecks that slow down process and impact value and bottlenecks that are susceptible to better information handling. So I wouldn't call them software companies. I would call them information companies. And in fact, that, that blew my mind. Eight years ago, I was sitting down with a number three guy at a really big bank, consumer 
credit card company largely. And he described their company not as a financial institution, but as a data company. The flat out statement there. And I was thinking, well, yeah, but it's just stunning to hear an executive saying that. So we need to look at the entire activity of the business to more or less granularity. And we have to view it as an information flow. And then we have to see where does that information flow work and where does it not work? Where are there problems with it? And where are there problems that would be susceptible to these new technologies making it better? We have a a huge medical insurance company. And one of their problems was that it took a human a lot of skill and a lot of judgment to look at provider claims and to figure out which ones are within process, but more importantly, which ones are actually just out-and-out fraud. There's, there's not a lot of that among medical providers, among real medical providers, but there are a number of bad actors who are happy to pretend to be that, and they don't have to be very many of those to be having a significant financial impact. It was hanging up the entire business to try to deal with the bad actions of a tiny minority. And by automating the targeting of that attention, of that human attention, most of the business was released from that critical step. And that's a huge thing. That's hundreds of millions of dollars. That's multiple thousand percent ROI in the first year for what started as some very basic information flow improvements and very simple machine learning models intended to just make the flow work better. But the core thing here is to look at what makes the business really go and look at where the business really derives value. And then as every business opportunity has ever been, look for where you have leverage that can make a difference in value. Okay. Well, Ted Dunning, thank you for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been great talking to you. It's been great talking to you, too. Wow.